remain standing for our sermon text. I'm going to read not only verse 28 as it's printed in your bulletin, but 29 and 30 as well. So listen carefully because this is God's infallible word. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, please be merciful to us and help us to believe the promise in this scripture, especially in verse 28, and to grow in our trust and our faith in you and casting ourselves on you, casting our burdens on you and trusting you to be perfect and wise even as you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> Today's sermon is going to be a little different maybe from what you're used to from me. It's, I hope it's a, an encouraging sermon uh, as we really focus on the promise in verse 28. And so for the maybe more doctrinally, theologically minded, we're not going to dig too deep into to 29 and 30 this time. We're going to come back. And, and next time, Lord willing, and get into 29 and 30. But today we're going to really just camp out on verse 28. And I hope that we're encouraged by Paul's words here, God's words, God's promise to us. In Romans 8, 28, Paul writes the words we've heard many, many times. And we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God. Now, two verses earlier in verse 26, Paul told us that he, he told us what we don't know. Remember that? We do not know what we ought to pray for. Now, in verse 28, he tells us what we do know. Do you see that? How he start? We know all things work together for our good. And there are few things more important in the Christian walk than being aware of what you don't know and aware of what you do know. Putting the, putting the things in the right category is important. When it comes to the particulars of what God's doing in the world, and even what He's doing in our own lives, we're mostly ignorant, oftentimes, right? Most, all the time, we're mostly ignorant. The, the details of God's purpose are above our pay grade. They puzzle us. We don't understand how everything that He's ordained works together, much less works together, work, work together for our good. We don't know what God's up to oftentimes. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. There are a lot of secret things. There are a lot of things in that bucket of things that belong only to the Lord God. That's a big part, in fact, of why we don't know 
what we ought to pray for. We don't know how to pray well, in large part because we don't know everything God knows. We don't know those secret things. We, we, the, but the Holy Spirit does, and, and last time we saw, He lives in our hearts, and He prays on our behalf, making up for our ignorance and our weakness in prayer. So we don't know much about the specifics of God's plan, but Paul says we do know the overall purpose, the overall purpose of that plan, particularly how it relates to our lives and even more particularly how it relates to our sanctification, our being conformed in, uh, to the image of God's Son. God has a well-defined purpose that he's working out specifically for you and for me because he has called us, because we belong to him. And Paul puts it very simply and clearly at the end of verse 28. Those who are called according to his purpose. So that purpose is for those who are called according to that purpose. And not everyone is called according to that purpose. If God has called you according to his purpose, this means two things that we can assume, that we need to assume, we must assume going into this passage and understanding how it applies. It means that he has an overall plan, he has an overall purpose as the sovereign God that he can and will execute, a grand plan, and the second thing it means is that he has a place for you in that overall purpose. There's a grand purpose and God has a particular place for you in it. Now, so far, this is, this is easy. This is not difficult stuff for us to believe. What's more difficult to accept is what Paul says about God's plan, about God's grand purpose in verse 28, when he says, all things work together for the good of those who love God. Now, again, that's, in a sense, easy to accept. It's on the pages of Scripture and... It's not particularly difficult for us to accept what God says. We know that this is true because it's in God's word, but sometimes it doesn't, we could say, ring true at some level. How could Paul say this when the world is filled with evil, hatred, violence, divisions, untimely deaths, untold suffering? How is the mother who loses a child supposed to believe, verse 28? How is the businessman who loses everything that he's been working for his whole life, how is he supposed to apply this verse to his situation? What's it actually mean in these scenarios? How do they not just become empty words that we can't ever really feel? If you've been alive very long, you can think of a lot of scenarios that are hard to make sense of in light of Romans 28. Maybe you've been in in a situation where somebody quoted this, maybe at the wrong time or in a way that just didn't hit you right. You may be experiencing circumstances at the moment that make it nearly impossible for you to, to accept, except purely at the intellectual level what Paul says here. When times are good, uh, you know, when we're experiencing the favor of God and, and we can sense that, th- that those blessings are flowing from God, from whom all blessings flow, 
it, when it's easy to see how the lines have fallen for us in pleasant places, as the psalmist says, Psalm 16, during those times, it's easier to believe this promise from the word of God. But when it feels as though God has abandoned you, it's tough to believe this text. Sometimes we feel the way David felt in Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? Psalm 13, 1 and 2. Can, can you feel like that? Can you pray like that and still believe the promise of Romans 8, 28? It's a hard thing to do. In fact, uh, it, it's impossible. It, it takes supernatural power and grace to do it. It can only be done if the Spirit of God is in you. God's grace is alive in you. So to know how to apply Romans 8, 28, we need, we need to examine it. We, we don't want to be naive. We don't want to write it off either. We need to see what it's saying and what it's not saying so that we can believe it as mature Christians and accept it as true and even begin to know how, how to think about it and to think God's thoughts after him to some extent, to the extent that he enables us by his grace. Now, this verse is a promise that is to be believed, okay? not primarily worked out and understood, that comes second. That comes after. That's secondary. But it's, so it's to be believed and accepted, but it also has some built-in, I'm going to call them qualifications, built-in. And we're about to consider, as the handout indicates, we're going to consider the, the five aspects of this promise that are listed there, not the only ones that could be listed. And as we consider these five implications and in some sense qualifications, of the promise, we'll see that Paul draws boundaries around it that, that limit it and define its application for us. But we'll also see that there's one aspect to this promise that has no bounds, no limits, no qualifications. We'll get there. So number one, the first thing, the first implication, the promise in verse 28 is for Christians only. It doesn't apply to everyone. Paul says, good, uh, God, Paul says that God works everything for the good of those who love him. And Paul, so Paul's talking about believers there. He reiterates this qualification in the second half of verse 28. There he says that the promise applies to those whom God has called. So you must be called by God and you must love God before the promise in this verse applies to you. So have you been called by God? Do you love God? Well, then this verse is for you. And once you are called by God, then even the things that happen before you loved God, before God called you out of darkness, even those things that happened before you came to Christ will somehow work together for your good. That's part of the promise here. And if we read on, we see in verse 29 that the promise only applies to those whom God predestined to be conformed to the image of his son Jesus. Do you see that in verse 29? Again, that means it applies to Christians. So there's a, sort of a triple witness here. 
Is God making you more like his son? Is, is God conforming you to the image of Jesus? If so, it's, you're a Christian. The Spirit is working in you. And you can know, Paul says, that God is working all things together for your good. The promise is for you. On the other hand, if you don't love God, if, you have, if you're not becoming more like Jesus all the time by the work of the Spirit in you, then God is not working everything together for your good. That's, that's the opposite. That's the corollary. That's the opposite implication. These comforting words are for genuine lovers of God. So the first implication, the promise in verse 28, is for Christians only. The second one is this. The main good in verse 28 is becoming more like Jesus. So this answers the question, what does Paul mean by good? He doesn't just leave it for us to fill in the content, the meaning of that that term, what what it's referring to. He answers the question, what is the good for which God calls all things, uh, works all things out? Now, if good means rich, wealthy, as some would like to think that it means, then Paul's actually wrong because many genuine believers have not been given a rich supply of this world's goods. The same could be said if good means healthy, physical health. Not all Christians have good health. Some of the godliest saints have been poor or chronically ill, and some of the most wicked people have been healthy and wealthy. Likewise, good can't mean successful or admired. God calls many Christians to endure failure or scorn or distressing experiences or severe disappointments. Again, some of you are experiencing these unfortunate circumstances or have in the recent past. Even though you love God and you've been called by Him according to His purpose. So what does good mean then? It doesn't mean rich or healthy or successful or admired or comfortable or pain-free. What does it mean? Verse 29, for those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. In other words, so that he might have brothers and sisters that are like him. That's, That's what the main good is, being conformed to the image of Christ. In other words, becoming more like Jesus in your speech, in your behavior, in your attitude. Can, can you think of any higher good for you? Do, you? do you have a better plan, better purpose for your life? Is anything better than this? Becoming more and more like your Savior and elder brother is what your life is all about. That's the goal. That's the end. That's what God's after. When you see that being conformed to Jesus is your highest good, when you see that it's God's ultimate goal for your life, when you see that He's orchestrating all things specifically for that good, you'll be able to see that sickness, suffering, and persecution, and grief, and financial setbacks, troubles, afflictions, and trials of many kinds, as James calls them, can all be used by God for the highest good in your life. So number one, the promise 
in verse 28 is for Christians only. Number two, the main good in verse 28 is becoming more like Jesus. And now number three, bad things work together for your good. Bad things work together for your good. Paul doesn't say in verse 28 that all things are good. Cancer is not good. The death of a child is not good. Paul's not saying that at all. Being robbed is not good. Sin, sickness, death are true enemies. But if you love God, if you belong to his son, then God promises to sovereignly orchestrate even all your enemies so that they accomplish your highest good in the end. That's what Paul's saying. Romans 8, in, in Romans 8.28, God's not asking you somehow to convince yourself that bad things that have happened to you or others that are happening all the time are, are actually good. Like that's, that's not the kind of mental gymnastics that Paul is asking you to perform here. So don't even, don't, you don't even have to try that. They're not good. God's just promising to work all the bad things genuinely bad things in your life for your ultimate good. And so this promise isn't always visible. In fact, I would say it's usually not visible. But it's always believable. You can't always see it, but by God's grace, you can always believe it. Now we come to number four. You can know that God always works everything together for your good, but you can't always feel it. You can know that it's true, but you can't, you won't always feel it. For some events in your life, you might never feel the truth of verse 28, at least not deeply, maybe not at all in this life. Sometimes what you might, you know, what you feel might, be the opposite of what verse 28 says. That's, that's what you might feel. Your heart or your experience may be telling you that you're being destroyed, forsaken. You can't feel or see the good in it. Much of the time we don't perceive the good things that God is doing in us and for us. But that's not what the text promises. The text does not promise a feeling. It promises that we can have knowledge of what's true, whether we feel it or not. So we, it doesn't say we'll always perceive it or see it or feel it. We know it. And so Paul, I said this last week, I'll say it this week, Paul wasn't naive. And, he, and I'll add, he wasn't a sentimentalist. He'd been persecuted, beaten, Stoned, shipwrecked. He, he had friends turn on him in the ministry. He'd been attacked and slandered both by the Gentiles and by his own countrymen. He didn't go around saying how wonderful the world was or how pleasant all of his missionary endeavors had been. He reported to the Corinthian church, for example, in the second, his second inspired letter, to that church, that he had been hard-pressed on every side, perplexed, persecuted, and struck down. 2 Corinthians 4, 8 and 9. But Paul overcame the things 
that pressed him down, that perplexed him, that struck him down. How? By remembering and believing that God was working all of those things out for his own good purpose in Paul's life. Through, through, God was accomplishing something in Paul through these undesirable events and circumstances that was, that were, that was good for Paul. God's purpose for his people is always accomplished. And he's committed to accomplishing his purpose in us, in his people, in you. He's committed to you and he's committed to your good. Just as parents are committed to the good of their children and their children don't often feel it, right? Because of the, of the boundaries or the, the discipline. Well, the same is true for us except God is infinitely wiser than any parent. He knows what's good for us, even though we can't always sense it, see it. But Paul knew, at some level at least, that God was always working these things together for his good. Even these very, very difficult things. So far then, we've seen that the promise in verse 28 is for Christians only. The main good in this verse is being conformed to Jesus. Three bad things work together for your good. Number four, you can know that God always works everything together for your good, but you don't always, you can't always, you won't always feel it. Now, I want us to turn expectantly to the one phrase in this promise in verse 28 that has no boundaries, no qualifications, no limits, no yes, but following it. The phrase is, what? All things. And we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. All things. This means that all things that have ever happened to you and that will ever happen to you are so ordered and controlled by God that the end result is inevitably and utterly and undoubtedly for your good. And there are three stories in my ministry that I often go to that illustrate how God works everything together for the good of the saints. We're going to look at these stories. First, the life of Joseph. Joseph's story shows how God controls circumstances, but it also shows how God hides the details of his plan from us. Joseph was presented with many opportunities to wonder whether God had forsaken him. As a young man, Joseph was favored by his father. He had a bright future ahead of him, but his brothers were envious. They hated him, and they conspired to do away with him. You remember, at first they threw Joseph into that pit that he couldn't get out of on his own. And they planned to just leave him there to die. Uh, eventually, some Ishmaelite uh, traders came passing by, and the brothers seized the opportunity and sold Joseph into Egyptian slavery. The Ishmaelites took Joseph to Egypt, and, and there he was bought by a man named Potiphar. Now, Joseph was only 17 years old when this happened, and 
he was now, at 17 years old, a slave in Egypt. You know, gone from very quickly from being his, his dad's favorite, wearing the coat, and now he's a slave in Egypt. But, but God did cause him to prosper there, and Joseph found favor in Potiphar's eyes because of his, his integrity, his faithfulness, and his competence. However, when Potiphar's wife tried to seduce Joseph and he refused... He was falsely accused of trying to violate her. And he was sentenced to prison where he spent the next two years as an abandoned, seemingly forgotten Hebrew. But you see, all of these unhappy events and circumstances were actually Joseph's path to the throne. God was using all of, these, all of this to raise Joseph to power in Egypt in time he became the second most powerful person on earth, second only to Pharaoh. And, and you remember how it happened. While Joseph was in prison, Pharaoh had a dream, and no one could interpret it. His chief cupbearer, who had been in prison with Joseph two years earlier, suddenly remembered, ah, uh, Joseph, there's a guy in prison who's good at interpreting dreams. He'd forgotten about Joseph. He was you know, supposed to go tell the Pharaoh right away, hey, I'm... I'm you know, there's this guy in prison who shouldn't be in prison, but he, he'd forgotten. Now he remembered. So the cupbearer told Pharaoh about it, and Pharaoh had Joseph removed from prison and brought into his court. And uh, he explained Pharaoh's dream, and Pharaoh was so impressed that he promoted him uh, on the spot. So this prisoner and former slave was now Pharaoh's right-hand man in charge of the Egyptian grain harvests. And so in preparation... For the, the famine that was going to come in seven years, Joseph stored large quantities of grain up and, and saved the world. In this way, Joseph saved many lives, the text of Genesis says. Now, on his way to becoming the second in command in Egypt, Joseph was hated, sold into slavery by his own brothers, slandered by Potiphar's wife, falsely accused, thrown into prison, forgotten about by the cupbearer. But all of these things were used for, by God for the good of Joseph and the good of others. Scripture records Joseph's own testimony on this matter, which is powerful. Years later, after Joseph and his brothers had been reunited, their father Jacob died. Okay, and so they're getting a little worried because kind of, they, they, they figured as long as Jacob's alive, Joseph's not going to take revenge. Uh, so they got worried that Joseph might, you know, take revenge now. But Joseph, Joseph assured them with these words, You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. Earlier, Joseph said something similar on the day that they were reunited, he and his brothers. In Genesis 45, 5, Joseph told his brothers this, Now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now therefore it was not you who sent me here, but God. See, I mean, they obviously sent him there in one sense, but in a more important sense, they didn't send him there at all. It was God doing this all along. 
And three times in that passage, Joseph says that God is the one who sent Joseph into Egypt. God sent him into that pit that, uh, that his brothers threw him in. God sent him into the valley of darkness. God sent him into the, the dungeon, the, the prison in Egypt. Fellow saints, God's not standing by passively as you walk through the dark valleys. No, he's actively sending you through the dark valleys just as he sent Joseph into slavery and prison all those years. And as he sends you, he promises to go with you wherever you go. And he promises to work it out for your good in a way that someday you'll even be able to see it and know it more analytically with greater understanding. The Lord has a well thought out purpose for all the inexplicable circumstances in your life, even as he did for Joseph's inexplicable circumstances. If you love God and are called according to his purpose. And so he's got it all mapped out. He's already planned your steps. The events have been decreed. That's not fatalist. That's comforting because a loving God, a personal God, has decreed it. Not just chance. He's planned every step. He's planned every detail. But he hasn't revealed to you all the details of his secret purpose. Because the secret things belong to him alone. So our duty is not to try to figure out why God is sending us into, through these valleys. There's no promise that we'll get to the bottom of it. Except insofar as we have the word of God telling us what's going on at a, at a general level. But we're not going to be able to get to the bottom of it and understand it most often. Not in this life, at least. We're only called to walk through the valleys, trusting in him, even as Joseph did. The second illustration, as you might expect from the Old Testament, is from the life of Job. This will be quicker. The, the story of Job is one of the saddest in the Bible, at least at the beginning. He was a mature and upright man. He was righteous, the text says. And he feared God. He shunned evil. He was blessed with seven sons and three daughters. His wealth included thousands of animals, sheep, camels, oxen, donkeys. Then suddenly, in one day, all of this was stripped from him, taken away. Raiders carried off the donkeys and oxen. Lightning killed the sheep. Bandits stole the camels, killed the servants. Finally, a building collapsed and his children were killed in an instant. Satan, who was the agent of all this disaster, expected Job to curse God for his ill fortune. So did Job's wife, encouraged him to do so. Instead, it says that Job fell to the ground in worship. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The next stage of the story tells how Job is covered with sores, with boils all over his body, from head to toe. 
And then his so-called friends heap more pain on him with their shallow counsel. And Job makes it clear that he doesn't understand what's going on. It's not adding up to him. He couldn't see or feel that his character was being developed, although by the time we get to the end of the story, we see that it clearly was. God brought him to greater maturity. He couldn't see how Satan's wisdom was being confounded, though it was. He he didn't get to see behind the curtain what was going on. He couldn't perceive how all things were working together for his good and God's glory, God's purpose. The only way he could have known this was simply by believing in the goodness of God. But he, even that, if you read his words, he's, he's not sure what to make of that. It does, all, all his categories are being exploded. And that's what happens to us sometimes in situations that, that press us, that, that squeeze us. Sometimes it blows up our categories, our preconceptions of God and how things work, even as it did for Job. The third illustration of how verse 28 works is a little different. It's Peter's infamous sin during the night before the crucifixion of Jesus and in his pride and his self-sufficiency Peter told Jesus that while all the all your other disciples may fall away they may deny you not me I'll go to prison I'll even go to death he told Jesus we see in this story that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall, Proverbs 16, 18. In his weakness, Peter did precisely what he promised Jesus he wouldn't do. He denied the Lord three times and the third time with oaths and cursing, it says. What was the outcome, though? The immediate outcome, immediate outcome was that Peter experienced a deeper regret than he had ever experienced before and ever would experience, I'm sure. It drove Peter to intense sadness, to bitter weeping, particularly when he made eye contact with Jesus afterward. So that was the immediate outcome, but that wasn't the final outcome. Eventually, Jesus worked Peter's sin for Peter's good. He He interceded for Peter, as he said he would, so that Peter's faith would not finally fail. He asked the Father to orchestrate these events so that once Peter was restored, he would be even stronger and better able to strengthen the brethren. Remember, when you, you're going to fall, but afterward, strengthen, encourage the brethren. And later he's going to say, feed the sheep. Peter was in a better place to do those things because of this. Now, this is not, this is not calling sin good. But it's just how one of the ways in which God works things out. Before Simon Peter sinned, Jesus said, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, when you've repented, 
strengthen your brethren. This story is not an excuse to take sin lightly. Just because we know God can use it for our good. Well, so it doesn't really matter what I do. God's going to take it all and it's going to be great. That's not the point, and it's not encouraging us to think that way at all. But it should encourage us that God can and will use even our failures, even our shortcomings, even our worst moments for our good, for his glory. So what do these illustrations teach us? They teach us that God's purpose for God's people cannot be thwarted. You can't thwart God's purpose. The last word in verse 28 is purpose. And then in verses 29 and 30, Paul lays out what that purpose entails For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also declared righteous. And those he declared righteous, he also glorified. We're going to come back and look at these verses in more detail, but these verses are connected to verse 28. If you're a Christian, your story began with God's foreknowledge of you before you existed, and it ends in your glorification. Do you see that in this text? And God is the one orchestrating this. He is the one carrying this out sovereignly. And so he is the one who can make everything work out for your good, for his purpose. Now, foreknowledge isn't just knowledge beforehand. Like, you know, if we just break the word down, For knowledge, knowledge beforehand. Well, that doesn't at all do the word justice, uh, particularly in the in the Greek. It's far more specific specific than that. Foreknowledge denotes an intimate, special knowledge, covenant knowledge that belongs to God's people, to God's elect. It's it's a covenantal affection for you. I'll, I'll remind you that knowledge in the Bible is often more than just head knowledge. It often denotes intimacy. For example, between a man and a woman, they know each other. And so that word has more connotations than just head knowledge. And this word, you could look at how it's used in the Old Testament too, to flesh this out. It's about God's affection, affectionate knowledge toward us before we existed. His affection for you before you existed. So to be foreknown by God is to be loved and chosen by God even before God God started forming you in your mother's womb. Your story as a child of God began in eternity past, before Genesis 1-1. Because it began in God's eternal foreknowledge of you. And he doesn't have foreknowledge of everyone. Of course, he knows everything. He knows everyone equally. But foreknowledge is specific to God's people. 
But, but your story continues, if you're a child of God. The, the next, God predestined or predetermined to make sure that you were conformed to the image of his son. And this also, that also happened before you existed and before Genesis 1.1. God decided in eternity past, before he made the heavens and the earth, and certainly before he started knitting you together in your mother's womb, he decided to make sure the events in your life would have the effect of making you more like your big brother, Jesus Christ. And after God predestined you to be conformed to the image of his son, he eventually called you. He called you out of the world, out of, spiritual, out of your spiritual grave, and he gave you spiritual life. And this happened when you existed. It happened when you were born again. When God gave you new life. And after he called you and united you to his son with saving faith, by saving faith, and he declared you to be righteous in him, he made you right through the blood of Jesus. The story continues to your glorification. So he declared you to be righteous when you were, when you were united to Christ. And then the final act is that you are going to be glorified. Your glorification is a future event. You'll be glorified when Jesus returns and raises you from the dead and gives you a new glorious body. So this, this is 29 and, and 30 are, are your, your, your life, your story. Uh, let's say your life story, but it started before you were living. This is God's plan and purpose for you. This is what Christ won for you, secured for you on the cross. Everything, even in, in, from verse 28 to 30, is yours in Christ. It's no one's outside of Christ. It's yours, every, anyone's in Christ by believing in Christ. All things work together so that this process will be brought to completion in you. And those who love God, who've been called according to his purpose. So do you love God? I ask you again, do you love God? Are you on board with God's purpose for you in this verse? Do you want to grow in Christ? Do you want to be conformed to the image of Jesus? Do you want to glorify God? Do you want to be glorified by God one day when Jesus returns? Well, if so, if you love God, you've been called according to his purpose, then you can know, Paul says, and this is a certain knowledge as you can have, that he's working everything to serve this purpose, this grand purpose in your life. You may not see it. You often won't feel it. You will often feel the opposite, but you can always know it and believe it. Your faith-filled knowledge of this promise is your lifeline. Your faith-filled knowledge of this promise is your lifeline in the Christian life. So if Romans 8, 28 to 30 is true, and it is, what could ever come into your life that can defeat God's plan? There are many things that can defeat your plan, my plan, human planning and purposes, our plans are often overturned by failures, by the opposition or envy of others, by circumstances, by our own sin, by others' sin. 
but not God's purposes. He's the sovereign king. His will is forever being accomplished. Nothing can thwart it. Nothing can undermine it. Nothing can happen to you that can defeat God's grand purpose for you. And so you can live with confidence in the sovereign purpose of God, even when you're confused and cast down. In verse 31, Paul goes, he goes on to ask, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Does it really matter who or what your enemies are if God is on your side? What can happen to you that can defeat God's purpose? Of course, the answer is nothing. Paul might ask, can a thorn in the flesh frustrate God's plan? Paul had a, a thorn, but God's grace, he, he found out, was sufficient for him. And it was in Paul's weakness that God was glorified. What about sickness? Job had boils, but God glorified himself in Job's sickness and brought Job to greater maturity. What about the arch enemy? Death. Can death hurt you? Death is bad. Death is an enemy. But at the same time, for those who love God and who are called according to his purposes, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. God has set things up so that even your death, if you love God, will be in advance in his overall purpose for you in that story that ends in your glory. You, you'll leave people behind, but if they love God, he will work even your death for their good. So I leave you with the words of the very next verse, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with Christ also freely give us all things? Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us all things and for working all things together for our good. Help us to trust you in this, to believe this promise, especially when it's difficult, when circumstances are pointing in a different direction or our senses are interpreting those circumstances differently. Give us the faith that we need to cling to you, to have the faith that David had, that Job had, that Joseph had, especially that the Lord Jesus had. We need your spirit to accomplish this in us, and yet we rest assured that you will accomplish this in us because you said you would. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.